Hey, this is Brett Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today, making his return to the show, the hardest guest ever to pin down, Seattle-based novelist and founding editor of the Weaklings website, Mr. Sean Bodewin. Sean, you may or may not be calling in from jail today, as I understand it. Is that right? Well, you can tell by the connection that it's a distinct possibility. <laughs> Thank you very much for using your one call to do the show. I really appreciate that. Well, I considered my lawyer, but this seemed uh, more vital. Of course it is. Um, and we also talked about actually uh, Christmas or Christmas tunes, prison tunes that we could, that we could do. Actually, if you were in jail, you are not in jail. The reason why I brought that up is because uh, we had a very difficult time connecting, and you said. If I cancel this time, even if I am in prison next time, I will call you and we'll do the show. Yeah, I do have to apologize because I did cancel like half a dozen times for uh, various uh, not very interesting reasons. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it did occur to me um, that people may be familiar with the Bad Brains song Sacred Love that uh, part of the vocal actually is HR, the lead singer, singing over the phone from prison. So uh, that's what gave me the inspiration. <laughs> there you go. So uh, Folsom County Prison, uh, C6 Steve and the Level Devils, Christmas Prison Blues, lots of tunes we could choose from if we did that. You know, I actually for a while uh, got into, there's a bunch of CD releases in the late 90s of just like prison work songs. Yeah. Not parchment farm sort of stuff necessarily just like snippets mm -hmm. of guys like actually out in the field and they're, they're really amazing really yeah basically um collections of songs that keep a rhythm so if a bunch of guys in a row are like hitting a log with an axe you know they can do it in time you know a lot of them are really beautiful and also like terrifying and heartbreaking oh for sure yeah well it's the old chain gang mentality yeah, yeah exactly huh I'd like to hear that, actually. Yeah, it's worth running down for sure. Yeah. Huh. Okay, so your real playlist is uh, here with me. And um, actually, before we get to that, Sean, I know that um, you're working on a new book. Are you not? Uh, yes, I am, as a matter of fact. So we, we should talk about that before you get started. Uh, I have one young adult novel, hopefully coming out soon. It's called Maximum City Blues. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is sort of a noir crime thing. Mm -hmm. And then an adult literary novel that I'm just finishing now called This Unlovely Monster, mm. uh, which probably wouldn't be out for at least another year and a half. But uh, I, I'm really happy with it. So I, I can't wait for it to hit the shelves. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And you're still uh, with the weaklings, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I'm concentrating so much on the books now that I haven't had a lot of time to get uh, very political. And then also, uh, there's so much political stuff to write about. It's sort of overwhelming. So it's pushed <laughs> me in the other direction. Indeed. Yeah. Enough said about that, probably. It's just, at the end of the day, the only thing that I can say about it is that it's unfathomable. That's really it. Does it seem from afar like we've completely lost our minds no, no i think there's a feeling of empathy is what it is mm. it, it's not you know i i understand what's happening but it's as unbelievable as it seems it, I, I empathize with the frustration right 
I remember traveling abroad when George Bush was president and I got the I'd get in conversations with people and they'd kind of hold it against me when they found out I was American. Like, mm. And I had to explain to them I didn't vote for George Bush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so I, I wonder if people outside the United States get the sense of how large a group of people here are not pro-Trump, you know, and are against everything he stands for. And it's a majority of Americans. Yeah, I, I, I think that's clear. I, you know, most people that I speak to in Canada about that, it's, it's very clear to them. Um, I think that, you know, there's, there's a general understanding of, of what happened and why, you know, and, and, and not to get too deeply into it, you know, with yeah. Hillary and that sort of thing and, and, and the voting process. But yeah, people people get that. You know, if you said that you were American, people wouldn't say, oh, Trump. You know, they, they kind of get it. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think but, everybody understands what the problem is. It's good because as long as I personally am <laughs> not getting a bad rap, then I, I'm okay with it. Yeah, in, in Canada, I think that's the case. I'm not sure what, what, you know, other parts of the world, you know, how they perceive it. But uh, Canada certainly gets it and, and feels your pain, sir. That's for sure. Okay, good. It's good to hear. <laughs> and you're not far from the border, actually, are you? It's true. It's about three hours. Uh, make the jump. I've been to Vancouver a lot. There you go. We accept you with open arms, that's for sure. I, yeah, I may just have to not come back over the border <laughs> one of these days. All right. Your first tune here is by Joe McPhee, and it's called Shaky Jake. Uh, it's worth mentioning... Uh, this is a, a album from 1971 called Nation Time that this yeah. song is from. Mm-hmm. And I just out of curiosity happened to go on Discogs, which is a, a vinyl clearinghouse, uh, to see what this album's going for presently. There's one copy available and it costs $1,861.27. Ooh. <laughs> why why would that you. be? Um, it's a really tiny press and they're really hard to come by. The, the record itself is really hard to come by. I think I paid 40 bucks for it mm-hmm. uh, way back in the day. But uh, it's highly sought after, and I think in particular because of this song. Wow. This is a great song. It's super long. Mm-hmm. You know, we had the joke about listening to it a bunch of times. The, the, the breakdown starts in at about nine minutes, and the, the breakdown... You know, just getting into that probably takes the same amount of time as a regular song would. Yeah. Um, I actually, I should have mentioned that I picked each of these songs because uh, it had a specific topic. Mm-hmm. And the topic I thought of for this song was authenticity. Um, and this seems like an extremely authentic music to me in the sense that it says exactly what it wants to say and it achieves exactly what it's trying to achieve and there's very little ornamentation above and beyond it there's no thought to fashion or commerciality Mm -hmm. um it's it's just pure expression yeah no i agree i actually really i I enjoy it quite a lot i like it yeah i mean i think some people would say it's a somewhat difficult piece of music but it's um it's exactly the kind of jazz that i love the most Mm-hmm. Uh, which is it's funky as hell. Yeah. Uh, it burns. Um, it's inside and out in the sense that he plays along with the, the chord structure and then he goes completely outside of it at times. So it's dissonant, but it's not completely dissonant. It like, there's a real groove there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think that's what I like about it too. It's a little bit more vibrant than you know your your typical idea of what jazz is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you say, it's certainly very funky. I like that. There's there's a lot of groove to it. It's it's uh, it's a little you know in terms of tempo, it's a little quicker. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I like it a lot. Uh, it you know uh, not to mention politics again, but I actually think it's a really political piece of music. Hmm. I mean, 1971. You know, for obvious reasons, was a, a fraught time in America, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's kind of like a, a fist in the face to me, in in, in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's also I think really political to to play a really long piece of music that has no chance of ever being on any radio station anywhere ever. <laughs> yeah, true. I've never really cared that much about cutting songs down to three minutes to get them on the radio and that sort of thing. So I, I actually embrace songs that are a little bit longer and a little bit more drawn out just because, you know, they're not, um, I guess you could say diluted. Yeah. I, I think people really hate, or there's a backlash now towards uh, prog and, and early classic rock, but you know, a lot of those early seventies bands and albums were the first to break that mold of the song has to be two minutes and 50 seconds Mm -hmm. to be on the radio. You know, people started to stretch out and yes, started to put out, you know, roundabout, which is like 18 minutes long or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so they did us all a favor if for, you know, nothing else you should appreciate them for that. Yeah. I mean, as as long as the character is there and the, the attitude is there, then I don't really see what the problem is. Yeah. I, uh, also wanted to mention about this, this song in particular, when I talk to people about liking jazz and they kind of roll their eyes, this song to me hits just as hard as any metal song. Mm. You know, if I, uh, Kill 'em All is one of my favorite, is definitely my favorite Metallica album. Okay. And this, this hits just as hard as anything on that to me. It has wow. just as many riffs, you know, it has just as much power, uh, it has just as much attitude. It's certainly got a lot of aggression. And that's one thing that jumped out at me as soon as I heard it is that, you know, when you think jazz, you think jazz, but then when you put this on, it's like, wow, this is very, very aggressive. It's like it, it needs its own genre. Yeah, actually. Uh, funny you say that because your next song also needs its own genre. It's, it's almost like a conflation of genres, actually. Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros, Get Down Moses. I love this song in particular. Uh, but the reason I picked it is because uh, the theme for this song is selling out, mm-hmm. which uh, the Clash were accused of uh, quite a bit, I would think, after uh, Combat Rock, but especially with their album Sandinista. Yeah. And so I was going to pick something off Sandinista, but I I love the Mescaleros and, you know, you don't hear about them much. So I thought I'd mention it to maybe give them a little love, too. Mm hmm. There was a point in my life when I definitely thought of music and certain bands as, as having sold out. And like when I got older, I, I finally realized I, I don't think there's any such thing. Really? What do you mean by that? I, I think when you're younger, you you hear a band, you hear the first album and then the second album doesn't sound quite the same. And, and you, so, you, you know, the band sold out yeah. you know, <laughs> as if it's up to the band to keep playing exactly the same music yeah. that you appreciated in the first place and stay in one spot yeah. instead of it, it being your job to follow them where they want to go. And if you choose to, that's great. If you want to listen to something else, that's fine. 
Yeah. But also that notion that like signing to a label, a larger label means, you know, you're no longer as authentic a band when the band's probably driven around in a van for two straight years and hauled their own amps and eaten gas station food and slept on someone's floor, you know, at every venue. And then someone throws a little money at you. All the people calling them sellouts, they would all take that money in a heartbeat. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I always try, Sean, to um, to put myself in the shoes of the musician when I hear an album that's completely different from the, the you know the one before. Just because there's a lot of pressure on bands, and you you think you know, especially today, right? You know, back in the day, you could you could put out five records until you really kind of found your groove, but now there's zero time to do that. Right. Um, so I always try to appreciate the band's position. And, uh, you know, bands want to make it, right? And Unless it's a completely radical, you know, I remember, remember Raven? We're talking about Metallica. Remember Raven? Yeah. Remember listening to Raven? All for one. So, so, so I used to, that album got me right at the right time. I think I was 14 years old. It's, uh, you know, it borders on, I don't think it's thrash metal, but people call it that. It's, it's, it's heavy metal, right? Mm-hmm. And so loved All for One, uh, back to front. Used to listen to it all the time. And then they signed with Atlantic, I think on the back of you know metallica and, and everybody getting popular and, and metal was getting big and so they put this album out i think it was called stay hard classy title <laughs> exactly it was completely different and i just thought they sold it you know and and i literally wanted to put the cassette on the floor and stamp on it i was so angry that i lost this band that i had come to love so you know from that side the sellout is kind of on your mind but on the other side, I've, I've learned to kind of put myself in the position of the musician and, and say, look, these guys, to your point, have been driving around on the road in a van uh, for 10 years and they, and they want to make it. So maybe consider artistic growth. Yeah, it seems like there's three scenarios. You put out the first album and the second album's not any good. And it's mainly because you used up all your ideas and all your notebooks from mm-hmm. high school and all the early poems you wrote. And then the, the label rushes you out to put the second album and you don't have the time, you know, you don't have all that backing uh, material because you've used it all. And then what do you do? Yeah. And then there's the band that puts out the second album and they put it out because they see a commercial avenue. Like, oh, we're going to do auto-tune on this one because auto-tune's popular. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it doesn't do very well. But the third one is the band that's like, we don't want to stay in the same place. We want to be musically adventurous. Mm-hmm. And and that's those are the bands with staying power. Yep. One album to the next, to the next, to the next, they're always going somewhere different. Yeah. And a, a master class example of that would be somebody like Bowie who just said, exactly. I want to do a folk record i want to do a a soul record the thing is he did all of those things but he he did them exceedingly well which i think blew a lot of people's minds yeah and you know someone else who's like that that doesn't get a lot of credit who i love uh and shout out to canadians uh neil young yeah uh i i know people that love neil and then but talk so derisively about the shocking pinks album mm. or trans trans you know and and those are weird albums and don't sell, sound anything like what you come to think of neil as but i think if you're gonna love neil you gotta love all of it you know you gotta love his experimentalism and his trying something out and maybe you don't play it all the time but those albums actually have good stuff on them yeah 
And I've always liked um, looking at all of the albums kind of in aggregate from the start to the end and trying to figure out, you know, what the unique story is, because, you know, that kind of tells you sometimes even things that the artist doesn't want you to know necessarily. When you look at, you know, the first record and go all the way through the recording history right to the last one, it will tell you a story about the artist that they they may not have even uh, attempted to tell you. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, if I do a reading somewhere, you know, I usually get asked, uh, what did I mean by that chapter or something that happened in that book? And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I meant. You know, I was in a particular spot in my life, and that's what came out. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't analyze it, uh, or a lot of times I don't. And then I'll go back and look at something 10 years later. I have no idea what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, but people want to assign meaning. And that's kind of the great thing. You know, this, the exact same song can mean 100 different things to 100 different people. Yeah. You know, and and often, uh, especially if you listen to like any band, if you closely listen to the lyrics, they're nonsensical or actually kind of dumb. You know, they're just trying to make things rhyme. (laughs) But people assign these profound meanings to them. So, yeah, because people want to draw conclusions and, and, and to a degree, I think people want to see themselves inside those stories. Right. Yeah, exactly. Real, you know, music fans are can be very greedy in that way, and I try not to be greedy, and I try to make it more about the artist than than about me. I know, you know, that's not always possible, but Mm. you know, when I was a kid, I, you know, going back to the Raven thing, it was all about me, obviously, right? But Mm -hmm. as I get older, I I try to to empathize more with uh, with the artist for sure. Yeah, every time I make one of these points, or I I use people in in the general term. Uh, I'm really just meeting me because I'm totally <laughs> guilty of all this stuff. You know, for, for years it was in a cloud of, of everything, a lot of things that I've been able to later in life step away from and kind of see more analytically. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm guilty of all of it. <laughs> so am I. We all are. Uh, your next song, Sean, is by Bert Jantz, and it's Black Waterside. Well, if you listen to this song, no doubt you immediately realize that the theme for this is plagiarism. Mm-hmm. Zeppelin, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Which yeah. uh, Jimmy Page very cleverly changed the name to Black Mountainside. Yeah. I'm curious about this. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you put this on. When I listened to this, I'd not heard it before, and I immediately heard Black Mountainside. And I thought, you know, Jimmy Page puts his name on a lot of stuff that he maybe shouldn't necessarily put his name on. You know, I think about a whole lot of love as yes. well, right? Without question. So how is it that he got away with this stuff? Well, I should say two things. One thing is this song, the Birch Janch version, is a really genuinely beautiful song. And it taken away from the conversation about Jimmy Page, just as a standalone, which mm-hmm. is the reason I picked it. I, I really love the song. The, the vocal is amazing, and the, the playing is really terrific, the fingerstyle picking. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I should say, I really love Led Zeppelin. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I really do. They were my first, like, I am so deep into this band, the band, you know, when I was in seventh or eighth grade, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anything I say from this point forward, that should be taken into account. And I still love them and think they're, you know, musically each very talented and uh, each of the uh, players very talented and the band is great. But (laughs) they stole so much shit from so many other people. Blatantly. It's it's actually mind blowing. 
Yeah. I've always wondered how they've gotten away with it. Well, there's been any number of lawsuits, and uh, they have a billion-dollar juggernaut of uh, royalties and earnings and, you know, a cadre of vicious lawyers. And so they've won all the lawsuits uh, they've been involved with, and that's how they've done it. Wow. But, you know, Jimmy Page credited himself as the writer of that song. Yeah. And if anyone out there is listening, go on YouTube, listen to the two versions. They are identical. Exactly. And, and that's what I mean by that, is that usually when you think about musical plagiarism, you think about, you know, Kiss ripping off Humble Pie or Motley right. Crue ripping off Aerosmith. But this is, is note for note. Like, it's, it's yes. the same song. Yes. Yeah. And, you know... Everyone steals from everyone else. Yeah. Everyone rips off riffs. Uh, all the old blues guys stole from all the other old blues guys. But the yeah. difference is they didn't make any money. Zeppelin made billions of dollars, or mm-hmm. untold hundreds of millions. Yeah. Why couldn't they throw some money to Bert Jansen's estate and just be like, yeah, you know, I lifted part of it, but I also made it kind of my own, and here's some cash. Mm-hmm. I've never understood that because it, it's it's indisputable. It is indisputable, Yeah. Well, and it's weird, too, because like when the Levy Breaks comes from, uh, I don't remember exact title, but it's a Memphis mini song. And they actually put her name, I think after a lawsuit, they put her name as a writer. They gave her credit (laughs) and they gave Willie Dixon credit on Whole Lot of Love and a couple other songs. But they ripped him off 19 other times. They didn't give Robert Johnson credit for uh, whatever. It became the Lemon song, I guess. I can't remember the original title of the song. But, you know, they stole that. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, note for note. And, yeah, they got away with it because they have good lawyers. Yeah. I, I, I still, I mean, good lawyer or not, I, I, it was beyond me as to how they got away with that. Because when you listen to the songs beside each other, it's the same song. But, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, <laughs> no, not whatever. <laughs> you should get really mad about it and uh, start a protest. <laughs> Be in the streets with signs. <laughs> you know, it's funny, too, because one of the worst examples is Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. Which which is uh, a song called, uh, I can't remember what it's called, it's one word, but it's by that band. Oh, it's, the song's called Taurus by Spirit. And it, just listen to that song and then listen to Stairway to Heaven. And see if you think maybe it was slightly influenced. It turns out that Spirit toured with Zeppelin at one point before that came out. Yeah, huge surprise. I didn't even know about that one. Yeah. Wow. It's easy to look up side by side, you know, instantaneously on YouTube. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's unbelievable. You know, uh, one side note I was just thinking of is... um, I think last podcast I mentioned the the Jack Johnson album by Miles Davis. Yeah. It's one of my favorite albums. And it turns out that Columbia just got all the master tapes or acquired the rights to them. Mm -hmm. And so they just released a five CD set of all the outtakes. Oh, wow. So I went ahead and bought it because, uh, like I said, it's one of my favorite albums of all time. Mm -hmm. And there's tons of stuff on it that's not on the album and alternate songs, not just alternate takes, but songs that just didn't make the album. Cool. And so for me, it was fascinating. And then I was reading that the producer of the, the album, Teo Macero, was furious that it had been released. And mm. in fact, was encouraging people not to buy it. And it was because he said that stuff isn't for anyone's ears. They purposely cut together the album the way Miles wanted people to hear it. 
And so I thought that that's kind of an interesting uh, twist on plagiarism is the posthumous, you know, appropriation of people's work and, and how deeply bizarre that actually is. It's a bizarre concept for sure. I think kind of the overriding principle is that if you're a fan, as you are, then it's interesting to, to hear these kind of machinations of these songs. And it, it's it's not as though you're going to judge them and say, this is inferior, it's terrible. I don't know. I, I, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I, I can see the point, but it's a bit ridiculous. Well, I don't know. As an artist, you have the, the right for people to see something the way you intended them to see it. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, if, if I got hit by a car today and then someone scoured my laptop and just put up all the junk files I had, as if anyone would be interested in that, but if they did, I wouldn't want that to happen. I wouldn't mm-hmm. want people to see half-done versions of stuff I was working on. Hmm. Why is that, do you think? Just because well, you had never intended it to go out? Right. You, you, want, you want something to be finished. You want the most polished version of it. You want it to appear in the way that you intended it to appear. Hmm. And, and, you know, you're dead, so <laughs> there's not much to be embarrassed about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it's like, you know, it's like peeking through your linen closet. Yeah, true. I think that, I don't know, I, I kind of see it the other way. You know, it's it would be cool for fans to, to have a broader perspective of your work. And I think it's kind of neat. I'm, I wouldn't really be terribly offended by that. Well, you'd be dead, so <laughs> it wouldn't I would, matter. I wouldn't care terribly either, yeah. But uh, I felt a little guilty, you know, listening to that stuff as if I was hearing something I, I shouldn't. But I will admit I didn't delete the files, so. Hmm. so I'm a hypocrite. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, well, I think we all are. I remember when Chinese democracy was out there. And uh, somebody had leaked it before the record came out. And I, I never did this, quite honestly. I'm not just saying that because we're, we're doing the show. I wasn't a big Napster guy. I wasn't a big pirate. But I really, really wanted to hear this record. And so um, I, you know, this, whoever was, was working in the studio downloaded these early tracks and I, I, uh, or leaked them and I downloaded them. And uh, I did feel very guilty about that. But I kind of felt like I wasn't really doing anything wrong because I was it was in the spirit of being a fan. I know that's a terribly weak argument, but still. <laughs> it's not that convincing, but I totally understand. <laughs> We're hypocrites, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, I, I did Napster um, right at the beginning, and then I, I decided I, I was just going to pay for music. Yeah. I mean, it's just too hard to... To be, I mean, it's one thing if you're Guns N' Roses, but it's just too hard to be in a band and put out an album and then just have people steal it. And yeah. I, I just, you know, trying to sell books and and having them, I've had my stuff pirated yeah. and it happens all the time. You know, you would really be an unbelievable hypocrite if you didn't you'd say, well, hey, you can't pirate my books, but I'm going to go steal someone's music. So I, I just don't do it. Yeah. No, it's funny you say that because this this happens to you too, of course. My uh, Kindle books, I see them like all over Google, you know, download yep. for free, for free, for free. And I'm like, you bastards. Yeah. You know? But what are you going to do? I can't do anything. It's terrible that people are doing that, but. Uh, you could make the case that if your stuff is circulating, it's better for you in the long run, mm-hmm. which I kind of guess is the case that like Apple made, you know. Yeah hand us all your royalties, but you'll get exposure. I don't know if, you know, the validity of that or, if, you know, if it helps your career in any way, but <laughs> <laughs> it's a possibility. Yeah. 
it just makes me feel better about it. That's what this. Yeah, <laughs> that's the conclusion. Sleep I, just a little better tonight, but you still won't have a dollar tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> All right, your next dude, Sean, is by Truck Fighters, and it's called Desert Cruiser. Um, okay, so the theme for this one is lack of ornamentation. Okay. Um, and I just thought it's interesting because I, in the last couple of years, have discovered somehow or stumbled upon Scandinavian metal mm. and Scandinavian music in general, which is unbelievably rich and varied. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on that seems to me more vital and interesting than what I know of the metal scene here. Mm-hmm. The other band I really like is, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing this inc- incorrectly, which is a Norwegian band called Kvelertak. Okay. Never heard of them. These two bands just amazing delivering kind of what i want from mastodon Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. although i'm I'm not crazy about where mastodon's at at the moment so maybe that's why (laughs) i went over and and started checking out these other bands but the thing i love about them is there's there's no spandex there's no uh spitting blood there's there's no platform shoes with fish in the heels (laughs) uh it's just totally stripped down all about the riffs it's all about the distortion uh, I, I just love it. it it hits me right where i want i need to be hit in the stomach when mm-hmm. i want to listen to that kind of music and, but there's not any of the i mean the hair metal era is over obviously but there's still you know kind of the artifice around metal in, in a way that they just don't traffic in at all yeah are they at the uh early part of their career still um no both of them i think are over a decade old oh. and they, they have a number of albums although truck fighter this album is uh gravity x desert mm-hmm. cruiser is the song that it comes from and i think it's their second or third album so pretty early on mm. yeah the reason why i say it is because the younger bands you know tend not to they're, they're a little bit more organic obviously and less kind true. of you know jaded yeah it's true but although i think they've carried the same kind of idea and attitude through I haven't seen anything from them. I was like, oh wow. You know, suddenly they're standing <laughs> on platforms and there's like pyrotechnics and stuff. Yeah. Although I did uh, I did hear that Caveller Talk uh is opening, I think this is correct, for Metallica on their next tour. Really? Yeah. So in, they've gotten they've gotten huge. In North America? I yeah, I don't trust me on it, but I think yeah, I think that's it true. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm not surprised by that because guys like Lars always has his kind of thumb on the pulse of what's going on, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe. <laughs> but I, does he not, though? Like, he, he's in especially, you know, Scandinavian metal bands. I, I know he's Well, gonna, that's true. That's true. He's got a soft spot for that music. I thought you were, I thought you were talking about his uh, art collection. Oh. <laughs> Certainly not, no. <laughs> no. But... You know, I once uh, in the in the mid '80s, I once went to see the Replacements, who were opening bizarrely enough for Tom Petty. Really? And, yeah. And my friends and I, this is going back to the days I was talking about where I was, I'm guilty of all this stuff. Okay. My friends and I were like, "Yeah, screw Tom Petty." So we watched the Replacements, <laughs> then we left, even though we paid for the tickets for both of them. Great. But I think of that because if I were to do that again, I would pay to see Cabeller Talk and then leave before Metallica. Not that I actually would, but if it were going to happen, I would rather see Cabeller Talk. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's kind of an expensive. Uh... <laughs> yeah, at this point, that's like a five hundred dollar yeah. middle finger. Exactly. Up. <laughs> I liked what you did during your last podcast. Turn your turn your uh, t shirt inside out as a form of rebellion. Do you remember? Do you remember telling me about that? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> Actually, always... it's a form. It's a form of survival. Yeah, but exactly. same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, nobody knew, but but you. That's the thing. <laughs> exactly. It's, 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 it was like, oh, that that kid's really cool, man. I wish I thought of that. That guy's a genius. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just try not to get beaten up. Yeah. All right, your last tune here is by Paul Pena, and it's called "Cosmic Mirror." Yeah, uh, and the the theme of this song, and it's good that uh, it went last, is pleasure. And mainly because I love this song and this album so much. It's okay. uh, one of my favorite albums of all time. Wow, really? Yeah. So, uh, go ahead. So I was just going to say, Paul Pena wrote Jet Airliner, for, not, not for him, but I think he gave it to Steve Miller, didn't he? Uh, he did not give it to him. Did Miller Jimmy Page it from him? Yeah. I Well, I'm not positive. I think... Steve Miller did actually give him credit, and no, in fact, I'm, I'm sure he did because I, I know Paul Pena lived off the royalties from Jet Airliner, mm. like it's his ba- main source of income, uh, for a long time. Oh. But going back and forth, uh, as we said, maybe to try with uh, Zeppelin and Burt Janch, you should put Paul Pena's version versus the Steve Miller version, and for my money, Paul Pena's absolutely blows Steve Miller's away. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I got to check that out. Yeah. And I, a lot of people hate Steve Miller, you know, because he's ubiquitous on, on early FM. Yeah. Uh, and certainly was for me growing up. But I, I'm not a Steve Miller hater. And in fact, I, I think he's an underrated guitar player. He just maybe didn't show it on his hits. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Paul Payne's version is so much better. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm a fan. The record that I listened to, I, I liked it a lot. I didn't know that he was blind, actually. Yeah, it's actually a fascinating story. Um, I lived in San Francisco uh, back in the early 90s, and I used to see Paul Pena busking on the street. Oh, wow. Usually was playing like acoustic slide guitar, and he's got this unbelievably deep baritone. Mm-hmm. And I was like, who is this guy? He's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like the third time I saw him, someone said, oh, yeah, that's Paul Pena. I'd never heard of him and happened to see like – a few weeks later, he was playing at Great American Music Hall, which is in San Francisco. So I went to see him, and he was with a full band. This is, you know, you see a guy on the street, you're like, oh, he's really good. And then he was with a full band, and he just absolutely blew me away. Wow. Yeah, and so I went and found this album, which is the only, he, he has two albums, one which came out in vinyl the year before this, that's impossible to find. Mm-hmm. And, and then New Train, which is uh, the album this song is on, which was recorded in 1971, but it wasn't released till 2000. And it was because he was in a dispute with his um, his manager, and there was this lawsuit. So he recorded this fantastic album, yeah. which this this song's great, but other songs sound he sounds exactly like Hendrix. Uh, it's really bluesy, it's really funky, and it's great music. Just sat in a vault until oh, 2000. What a waste! Yeah, and then it finally came out and. Uh, Literally, if anyone listening wants to do yourself a favor, go out and acquire this album, Paul Pena's New Train, immediately. Mm-hmm. I love it. I listened to the whole thing. I thought it was fantastic. Oh, you listened to the whole album? Yep. Did you check out that song, uh, Venusian Lady? I don't remember the songs, but if it was on the record, I did. <laughs> well, if you, I've tried this with a couple of people. 
don't tell them what's going on. Just sit them down in front of the stereo, okay. put on that song, yeah. and tell them, "Oh man, I this was just re-released. It's a it's a lost Hendrix song. <laughs> Someone just found it in a vault, and and I just got a copy of it. Want to hear it? And then play it. I guarantee you, they will buy it a hundred percent. That is so great. I loved. I I do stuff like that with my buddies too. I think I think that's so funny. <laughs> I haven't thought about this in 25 years, but I had a, a radio show in college, and uh-huh. it was from 1 to 3 in the morning. Yeah. This is in Ohio. So the only people listening are, like, people up on meth and people who work <laughs> in gas sta- 24-hour gas stations. <laughs> like, it was, it was a weird crowd. It, yeah. You know, they would call, call in and request stuff sometimes. And uh, earlier, one day before my show, um, a friend of I, mine and I had kind of gone into this basement below the music room that you weren't supposed to be in and there were all these piano parts you know like the the interiors of pianos with the the strings still attached and the springs and everything but without a piano just kind of leaning against the wall yeah and so we went in there and just started hitting them with hammers and it made this amazing cacophony that almost sounded like it was some intentional avant-garde piece of music (laughs) (laughs) so i had a i used to carry around a little mini disc recorder thing you know like from mission impossible like real ones with a a tiny little cassette in it yeah it's so i recorded us playing it and then that night on my radio show someone requested uh queen's live okay I don't know if you remember Queensryche. But yeah, totally, I do. And yeah. they're from they're from Seattle too, right? Just outside. Yeah, exactly. Although I didn't, you know, back then I was totally unaware. So I I said, you know, okay, now we're going to do this special live recording of Queensryche, <laughs> and then played that thing of us hitting the pianos, and uh, I really, I think I got a death threat. Oh, really? <laughs> People called in. They were really, really mad. Well, you know, I was. 18 or 19 or whatever I was. So I wasn't very smart, but the, the guys staying up late who were ready to hear Queensryche when they needed it, yeah. you know, at three in the morning on their shift when they're, you know, <laughs> eating Twinkies and <laughs> need to burn off some energy. We're not pleased <laughs> to say the least. So Learned a valuable lesson. Uh, <laughs> Never screw with people's metal on the late shift. <laughs> That's really funny. You know, there's one there's one other thing worth mentioning about Paul Pena, which What's that? Um, you mentioned he was blind, which he was, mm. and apparently he had a hobby of just listening to ham radio and would spin through the dial and hear these signals from all over the world, mm. and somehow came across um, a Tuvan station. Tuva is part of Mongolia, okay, and he was listening to the station, and in Tuva they have these people who do what's called throat singing, mm-hmm. um, which means singing two notes at the same time, mm. which was thought to be, you know, theoretically not possible. Mm-hmm. And yet the Tuvans are able to do it. They, they sing a bass note and then are able to make this overtone at the same time. Wow. It's actually really amazing yeah. to, to hear. And so Paul Pena became obsessed with this and taught himself how to throat sing. Wow. Yeah. And then I don't know. I can't remember exactly how the story works, but someone heard him and knew that there is a throat singing competition in Tuva every year. Okay. And Tuva, you know, is, is the Great Plains, uh, 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 the Great Steps, I mean, 
and you know that it's it's a really impoverished section of Mongolia, which is in itself impoverished. And like the prize of the of the contest is a horse or okay. something, and and they sponsored Paul Pena to go over there, <laughs> and he went he went over and he won. No Westerner had ever even uh, been in the contest, and he went over and he won the contest. Uh, wow. There was, yeah. there, was there outrage? Were people angry about that? I think they were so amazed by he has this again unbelievable voice, like mm-hmm. very few people have this unbelievably deep baritone. And they were so impressed by the power of his voice that they gave him this nickname that I think in Tuvan meant like massive earthquake or something. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so he got awarded the horse. There's a, there's a documentary about it called Genghis Blues that uh, you can you can find obscurely somewhere, I'm sure, on the Internet. But it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, that's a crazy story. Yeah. Wow. And worth just checking out uh, throat singing in general. Yeah. yeah, I had never heard of that before. Two notes at once. It, it sounds like nothing you've ever heard before. It sounds, it, it's like something the human voice shouldn't be able to do. Mm-hmm. It, it's like a bass note and then this high-pitched whirring. And it, it sounds like that's got to be someone singing and then playing like a guitar, a guitar effect. Except wow. it's one person singing. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. So that's, that's your next $20 well spent. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Wow, this has been uh, a crazy podcast. A lot of great stories. Good. <laughs> Tuvan singing right. and plagiarism and death threats. Well, if you if you had said this has been the dullest, most pedantic podcast ever, <laughs> you probably wouldn't have you know admitted it, even if that were the case. No. But, uh, I'm glad it, it was uh, crazy and interesting. It was. And, and I told you uh, off air, you always have some very, very intriguing songs and probably the most intriguing songs that, that come through. So, um, you know, whenever I see your list, it's always fun for me to, to look at them. And often I don't know the songs and, and I'll check them out. And I've added a couple to my own personal playlist. So thank you for that. Good. I'm glad. I, I take that as a compliment for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, uh, I'm always glad to have you on the show, sir. We should definitely do a third one. Yeah, it was tons of fun, as always. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, take good care, Sean. Thank you very much for your time today. You too. Thanks, Brent. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Sean Bodewin. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.